All right. Here we go. Quiet. Hello and welcome to the Big Picture Podcast, where we take a look at the latest movie news, the films of yesterday and today, and put them all into some sort of context. Seated across the microphone from me is Film Buff Online Editor-in-Chief, Rich Drees. And seated across the microphone from me is Film Buff Online Contributing Editor, Natasha Bogutsky. How's it going, Natasha? Wonderful. I'm Good. in the process of enjoying Her Majesty's Platinum Jubilee. Ah, yes. Which feels right, considering the film that we're going to discuss today. Well, yes, that's true, too. <laughs> um, okay, I'll yeah, stop but, being proper now. Okay. You guys know me. <laughs> I just wanted yeah, to throw you a little bit. <laughs> I was wondering who this posh woman is on my couch. <laughs> Boy, I can be posh. Oi. I I I'm not up to doing an English accent today. Sorry. No, that was terrible. Dreadful. Yes, I know. I'm willing to fall on my uh, ceremonial sword about that. You have a ceremonial sword? Oh, well, yeah, who doesn't? Good point. <laughs> Anyways, yes, uh Queen's Jubilee is going on. I'm kind of sitting here thinking about we have the TV series The Crown. Mm. But I'm trying to think, was there any other, like, films that really examine modern royalty? The Queen. Uh, the Queen, yeah, okay, duh. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I can't think of anything else outside of, even, like, royalty outside of um, Britain, even. Um, mm, um, there was Diana uh, with Naomi Watts a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Kristen Stewart thing from last year. Yes. But even uh, even that still kind of feels like a historical movie, movie a bit. Because, you know, unfortunately, Princess Diana's been dead t- two decades now. Well, the, the Queen, even though it was done in 2006, the film takes place following Princess Diana's passing. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a weird way, also a historical piece. Um, but The Crown is also historical. Yeah, because we start before she's. I, I think we don't think of it as historical, though, because many of these participants are in the story are still alive. I would agree with you. So, um, and then we had also the the film about Grace Kelly, which is was not all that great, but um, mm. definitely have to put it on the list. Okay, Nicole Kidman. Yeah, at, but at some point, how far back do you go before it's? You know, really considered historical. I wouldn't consider anything about like the czars in Russia, like Anastasia. That story entirely is historical to me. Um, and even like I said, like you know, the crown. I still, you know, I, I, I'm at that age where I'm like, okay, people are looking at things I remember in the news as not just a news story, but as a history story now. And I understand that's because um, I'm getting older. When it but... comes to royalty, there isn't much royalty left in the world. Um, and those that exist are not very... They they don't like to go towards the world stage. Um, they definitely are more focused on their own countries. Mm-hmm. And they're um, also kind of figureheads because yeah. not I can't 
think well, outside of maybe like some Saudi royalty and uh, some countries in that area where a, the royalty is actually still in command of it, the country. Yeah, most of them are, are constitutional monarchies at this point um, mm-hmm. or parliamental monarchies. Yeah, there isn't a whole lot of them that are definitely still reigning um, in, in definitely in command of the country itself. Um, but the royal family of England has definitely been more center stage for as long as I can remember. Well, um, I was at Boy Scout camp the week uh, <laughs> that uh, Charles and Diana got married. So I actually had never sat down and watched that whole wedding mm-hmm. the way so many other Americans had and so many other people around the world had. It was only like in documentaries and in news stories and stuff like that that I saw bits and pieces of it. Yeah. So, yeah. And again, that was something that captured the imagination of the world. The day the that Kate Middleton and, and Prince William... Um, got married. Our school actually switched on every television to that channel. Wow! W- the whole school, a public school mm-hmm. in America, watched this wedding. Right after uh, history class, where we learned about the American Revolutionary War and why we <laughs> fought it. <laughs> but we we found it interesting that it was becoming more commonplace of commoners becoming royalty and mm-hmm. i think that was one of the the first major ones um that wasn't like princess diana was related to the spencers obviously she is of a royal yeah you could probably find her in burke's peerage yeah exactly um took me a second to remember yes burke's peerage. <laughs> yeah, like, mr carson like would be I was, so proud i was letting you go for a moment so i could drag that up yeah um <laughs> well, actually, the Spencer family is related to George Washington. Oh, gosh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Somewhere deep, dark it, in the past. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was I thought that was always an interesting connection. I would say the first time, well, no, wait, even before Grace Kelly man- marrying the uh, Prince of Monaco. And then we had um, uh, Rita Hayworth also, who had married into a royal family at one point. Yeah. Um, but... Who was it? There was somebody in England who abdicated in the early ha- uh, early part of the 20th century, abdicated so he could marry um, a commoner. In, in England? Yeah. It was um, it King was... George? No, King... No, it wasn't King George. It was um, his brother. Okay. Uh, Edward. Edward. That's it. Um, he abdicated uh, the throne to marry... An American divorcee by the name of Wallace Simpson. Wallace Simpson. I, I could remember the story. I couldn't remember the names, which I think might clue people into uh, how my level of interest in the British royal family versus yours. Um, I, you, <laughs> I know you are my much history. More, you are just much more of an Anglophile on certain things like that. Than I, I am, but mm. I didn't. Oh, no, I'll admit. Honest, I didn't even know about Edward and Wallace until I watched the King's Speech. <laughs> but then after the King's Speech, I uh, <laughs> I learned a little more from um, reading a couple of books, and then I saw the dreadful Madonna-directed film, uh, W.E., Oh, gosh, yeah, I remember that thing was out there. I have not seen I it. I liked... And you certainly didn't give me a... I did like some of the performances in it. Um, mm-hmm. 
I liked um, uh, James D'Arcy as Edward and uh, Andrea Riseborough. I thought was was giving one of those breakout star performances in that film, and it's a shame that she never kind of got kickstarted mm-hmm. <laughs> the way she should have after yes. that. Um, and then I learned a lot more watching The Crown. Because they do a couple episodes about that. Mm-hmm. They they the crown deals and, and delves into some of the uh, the darker parts of their history that sometimes they don't like to talk about. Like there was a a couple of distant cousins who were not right in the head, and so they were sent off to a mental hospital. And, uh, recorded dead. Yeah, there there is a definite history of hiding, uh, I don't want to say the embarrassments, mm-hmm. but they would view them as embarrassments. And the fact that, you know, they sometimes do stuff like this. Uh, well, they can't get away with it so much these days. Mm. Um, but... No, but the the episode actually was I, I thought it was very interesting and it was about Margaret finding out about this and confronting the queen about it and saying we have a we have a duty to them, their family. Mhm. And and trying to to put things right. Yeah, but I th- I think it also illustrates a um, a frision between duty to one's family, duty to a country uh, by being a figurehead and having to embody a certain ideal and if you have you know a member of your family who's um you know you weren't you're not sure what that was Mm -hmm. but just for example if they had a learning disability yeah or something like that um distinct possibility with the amount of inbreeding there or close breeding um Mm. then yeah then you're confronted with a problem do we continue to present this platonic ideal of britain and stoicism and perfection or do we admit to this what they would consider a flaw in their family and which i would think would be the perfect way to say we embrace all because we are all ourselves and we understand that there are you know different types of people in our country and we want to i know it sounds like i'm yeah promoting diversity and such and i think that is actually the best way you can be an exemplar of your nation mm. is if you do that. And that's why when I look and see this, the, the hideous and horrible stuff that was thrown at like Meghan Markle, um, you know, I'm like, you know, and it's, it's sad that they kind of had to distance themselves from the rest of the Royal family, even because of that, because I think if, you know, the rest of the family had kind of stood up more and they took that as a moment to say, Unity. Yeah, unity, because Britain is made up of a multitude of different types of people, and we want to reflect all of you as well. I think that would have been a um, a greater, you know, uniting moment for the cu- country. And who knows, you know, maybe that would have changed what happened with Brexit. I don't know. You know, the, the, you can't kind of uh, predict what those fallouts would ultimately be across society. I just don't think that there would be too many negatives overall. Yeah. Um, 
But anyway, I think we're getting a little yeah. far away. We are we, strayed way the far away. However, I will say, if you guys have the chance to check out The Crown, you included, Rich. I know, I know. Seriously, from I have a to watch Westworld first. Yes, <laughs> but from a, a historical writing standpoint, you would thoroughly enjoy this. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and John Lithgow as oh, I'm Win- in. <laughs> He's Winston Churchill. I know, I know. That is one of the reasons why I do want to get around to seeing the Crown just it's for John Lithgow. Fucking brilliant so. performance from him. What's John Lithgow? Of course. I'm I'm excited. Um, really quickly, and mm-hmm. this will actually carry over in a moment. Uh. Um, the new season of The Crown. Uh, they switch they switch out their cast every couple of years in order to show a time jump. Um, and we've had the likes of. Claire Foy, Olivia Coleman play Her Majesty, and mm-hmm. now we're getting around to Emilda Staunton. Oh, our Lady Bagshaw, <laughs> Professor Umbridge, is taking on Her Majesty. Yes. Um, and speaking of reigning, before we move on to what we're going to review, um, have you looked at uh, this weekend's box office? No. Why? Okay. Um, I saw well, something about Top Gun. But, yeah, Top Gun Maverick opened up last weekend. We're not going to review it because we both haven't seen it. And um, I've seen it. I said we both haven't. Oh, yeah. So I was <laughs> trying to cover for me not having seen it. Um, there aren't many times where uh, you can definitely say you haven't and I have. I know. So <laughs> mm-hmm. give me a little credit. I am. Okay. <laughs> I was remiss in seeing it. Natasha hustled right out and caught it. Um, and, you know, had a great big opening weekend last weekend. Did you see what the, um, the box office prediction for this week is? What the drop is on that? 33%. Yeah, that's insane. Usually, when a movie opens at number one, its second weekend is about, the drop off is about 55 to 65%. For it to only drop 33% is amazing. And, um, so, want to throw this to you here, um... Do you think this is definitely a demonstration that movies are back, baby? Or or is this just a kind of a one-off fluke because it's Tom Cruise? Uh, I don't think it's a one-off fluke because of Tom Cruise. But I do think it's only a one-off fluke. Come on. It's got planes for the dudes. It's got hot guys for the girls. It's a fluke. It's got Jennifer Connelly for me. Yeah, um, which is she's weird that I'm stunning in this, well. and on top of it, she's the instigator of most of the romantic motion moments <laughs> in the film. There's a there's a moment where he has mm-hmm. to crawl out her window, like she's pushing him out her window <laughs> because her daughter came home early, oh, boy. and he goes, "This is it. This is the last time I'm going out can't, your window." <laughs> can't can't say I've ever been in that position myself uh, because I think I'm under an NDA, and uh, <laughs> but. I mean, a lot of people are saying, oh, this movie is going to have legs because it's a dad movie. It does mean that an older demographic is coming out to the movies. Marvel movies can do great, but that's an, you know, roughly it's an 18 to 40 year old demographic that's mainly going to Marvel movies. You know, myself may be a little bit out of the mainstream on that. But a lot of my peers who, especially those who have kids and stuff who maybe go to Marvel movies with their kids, but they're like, oh, here's a movie for me. Me. Yeah. Because yeah. we were all. 16, 17 years old when, you know, the first one came out. I, I will I will say I didn't want it to be. 
It's a thousand times better than the original. <laughs> it actually is. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's I wanted I'm... to see this film flop so goddamn bad. <laughs> yeah, I know, because you hated the original. I hate, I'm not a oh. big fan of the original either. And I know I need to re-see it before I go. I'll probably catch up with it this week at some point. But yeah, I, I, I feel like I really do need to get to this, though. Um, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of good, even from some people who were skeptical about it. Beyond it, just you. It's definitely so. one of the better legacy sequels I've seen, mm-hmm. which was very and, impressive. Which is great because Tom Cruise, you know, the only other legacy sequel he made was uh, The Color of Money. And there he was a supporting character to Paul Newman, mm-hmm. of course, playing, um, you know, the same character he played in The Hustler from the 60s. Yeah. So what other legacy sequels do you want to see from the 80s? Let me ask you that really quick. You're you're thinking. I mean, I was joking about this with somebody the other day, and I was like, "How about you know weirder science or <laughs> Ferris Bueller calls in sick or something?" You know, or my my brain just blanked on every movie from the eighties. <laughs> that... Um, I, I want to see the Pork Chop Express roll back into town. <laughs> More trouble, more China. There's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> something. I don't know what you would call a big trouble in Little China sequel. Um, but I don't know if that film would fly. <laughs> to be honest, today, <laughs> I think you could still do Big Trouble in Little China today. Um, I think the the time for a sequel was in the '90s when Hong Kong action films were having a bit of a resurgence. And especially in the U.S. here, I think then definitely people would have been like, oh, okay, I see what Carpenter's trying to do here. And then it would it, probably be even a bigger hit. I would think also now with, um, you know, Asians being portrayed now in the media is more than just your your average just run-of-the-mill joke or supporting character like actually having great arcs Mm -hmm. um like i I, last night i went and saw everything everywhere all at once for the third time (laughs) like that film is amazing crazy rich asians was fantastic um shang chi obviously one of the better one of the better films Mm -hmm. of phase four so far um I, I think now would be a great time to take Big Trouble in Little China and bring it into today's society. I'd love to see how Kurt Russell has <laughs> not changed. Oh, yeah. I, I, <laughs> and you could do so much with that character uh, as... Kind of stuck buf- in the past. Uh, stuck in the past, a bit of a buffoonish caricature of to- toxic masculinity, which he kind of already is. He is, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, you and move just beyond the main idea of he's... He's a sidekick who thinks he's the hero of mm. the story. Yeah. Um, and I think that would be that would be really interesting. I like that. And do, um, here's a question. Do we get James Hong back? <laughs> sure. I mean, he spends half his time in a wheelchair yelling at people anyways. Uh, and we've already seen him do that in everything everywhere. Yeah. As I've said before. <laughs> Somebody. Oh, gosh darn it. I can't remember the actual quote. Somebody. Like recently, I think it was on the Dana Gould podcast, uh, described everything everywhere all at once as if Terry Gilliam made a Marvel movie. And, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, <laughs> I like that. That's fun. Um, but I know you wanted to circle back and I apologize because you're making faces at me. Uh, so, <laughs> was I? I apologize. That's okay. 
Yeah, um, the casting for The Crown. So a lot of these are going to end up crossing over with what we are about to talk about. Okay. Obviously, Melda Staunton. Um, we have Jonathan Price is playing the Duke of Edinburgh. Mm. Leslie Manville is coming on to take on the role of Princess Margaret from Helena Bottom Carter. Okay. Um, Johnny Lee Miller is John Major, the Prime Minister during 90 to 97. That's good casting. Now, I hope he doesn't do like the one Johnny Lee Millerism that I kind of noticed. <laughs> Sean Connery somewhere? <laughs> uh, no, it, in between like watching him on Elementary and in um, uh, the Dark Shadows movie, Tim Burton's Dark Shadows movie, which is shit. Um, oh, I know. He does a thing when he's nervous. He does like a finger tappy thing. Um, I've noticed. I noticed that like when I was watching Dark Shadows, I was like, he does that on on Elementary as well. That's just an acting thing. That's like his go to acting thing for me. So I don't want to see him do that. Hopefully. All right. So sorry to interrupt. Go no, ahead. it's okay. Elizabeth Debicki, obviously mm-hmm. as Princess Diana. We've already seen photos of her in the infamous revenge dress, and holy shit, she looks more like Diana than Diana does. Yeah. Um, Olivia Williams is Camilla. Okay. And I saved this one for last, because our lovely guy Dexter, Dominic West, is playing Prince Charles. Oh, that's nice. nice. That's nice <laughs> a casting. <laughs> so we've got two or three of our... Downton family mm-hmm. joining the crown. So I guess the cat's out of the bag right there. If you haven't looked at the title of the episode, <laughs> where I'll probably mention it, um, we're going to be talking about the new Downton Abbey movie, <laughs> <laughs> The Next Era, or The New Era, The New Era, excuse me. Um, yeah, it's The Next Generation, that's Star Trek. Um, A New Era. A New Era. Mm-hmm. Okay. Jeepers. Sorry. I thought it was going to be a definitive article era. It's just a generic <sighs> era. Okay. Baron Julian <laughs> Fellows would probably slap the shit out of you right now. Well, <laughs> I would apologize. So. <sighs> yes. Delayed a couple of times because of COVID and everything else. Um, what did you think about this movie? And um, how it relates to the rest of the franchise. A l- I'm going to start this off by saying a lot of people um, that I know who are big Downton Abbey fans preferred the first film. Okay. I actually prefer this one. Pray tell why. I think it follows more of an emotional line through its film. Um, whereas the last film, to be honest, the only one who really has a big arc in it is Branson. This one I feel is a journey for a lot of the characters. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel like anyone ever gets snubbed. Okay. I would definitely agree with you on that. And they even bring in old cast members. We haven't seen since the television show. So it took six years jump between the ending of the show and the first film add on the last three years since the first film came out you're looking at almost a 10 year gap we haven't seen some of these characters like Mm -hmm. 10 years of their life yeah uh we haven't seen rosamond we haven't seen dr clarkson we haven't Mm -hmm. seen mr mason at the (laughs) the farm um murray the 
the lawyer, like, Danker. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I have not missed Danker. I will just say that. I have not missed her. Uh, (laughs) And um, it was nice to see some of those characters get a little bit of a happy ending, Mm -hmm. Mr. Mason. Mm -hmm. He deserved, after everything he's gone through, a little bit of joy. And I'm glad he had Mrs. Patmore. (laughs) I'm glad Mrs. Patmore got him drunk enough to say yes. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, obviously, are we going to go straight into big spoilers? Well, the film's been out over two weeks. That is true. Um, So, yeah. So, as a fan, you were very happy with it. I was extremely happy with this one. As a casual fan, I definitely enjoyed it. Um, There are certain things about it I do like better than the first film. Um, I think the story is... For, for a story that goes to Europe and takes us out of the country, really, for the first time with these characters, mm-hmm. um, I dare say it's more compact in that um, we concentrate on these stories, uh, on these characters and their emotional journeys, like you said. Because, um, you know, my big to, – to reiterate my big problem with the first film, it's four acts. Yeah, it's, we, it's every, like two it's two episodes stuck together. It's it's about nine episodes stuck together, but the the idea that they, you know, after the king finishes visiting Downton, they the go. king goes to another another um country house or whatever. Harwood. And, and everybody else packs up and follows and the cameras decide to follow uh them too and we get even more story and stuff where most of what happens at Harwood could have happened back at Downton and um, been more um, economical in terms of the story. I would agree and disagree with you at the exact same time. The What we needed to go to Harwood for was the story of Princess Mary. Yeah, but I'm not sure that was entirely necessary. But, you know, because it just, it just felt like this whole hardwood section was kind of tacked on. It was tacked on, yeah. definitely. Um, so here, even though you know we have half the cast going off to France to this house um, to check out and go through this whole process and and kind of investigate the mystery, mm-hmm. uh, and you know some people are still back in England. We follow both of those. Tr- uh, it never felt like extra. Mm-hmm. It, it de- definitely felt like it was right, mm-hmm. um, even though it was a little singing in the rainy. <laughs> yes, the <laughs> the the film crew at at the Abbey was definitely a little sing got a little singing in the rain. Um, you should have saw Darren's reaction when she f- walked in. It was just like this is Myrna Delgleish, <laughs> and then walks away, and he was just like, "Wow, she's a bitch." And then the, she finally opened her mouth and went. How should how should I know? And he, yeah. And you should have saw Darren's reaction. It was fucking priceless. <laughs> it was great. Oh, and um, yeah, it, yeah. So it's definitely <laughs> definitely was very much a um, singing in the rain riff, mm-hmm. and I was fine with that because that's one of my favorite films. <laughs> so you know, it was, and it was a fun way to filter that story through the Downton Abbey lens, if you will, of history. I. Mm-hmm. History and Downton have always gone 
you know, together. Well, um, ever since the first episode, which basically opens with the news of the sinking of the Titanic. Yes. But, you know, we also go through, like, Lloyd George. We go through the Irish riots. And there's just so much of it that comes into the Abbey itself. Um, but we never really deal with anything in the show outside of that. We never really dealt with like theater or arts. We usually deal with politics or war. Mm -hmm. And then of course the relationships within the Abbey itself. It's it's always felt like a very tight knit group. There's not a lot of societal change that kind of hits the Abbey. Yeah. Not Um, for a while. Yeah. Later on in the series. Yeah. Especially like um, when they, Oh gosh, I'm remembering a time when like some of them go into London uh, with I think one of the American cousins, and they go to a jazz club, yeah, and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, that so, was for um, Lady Rose's um, presentation yes. to her Her Majesty coming out as a debutante. Yes, I mean, you know they did stuff like that, yeah. but it was never a big driver of the show. No, um, but now we're getting through the end of the twenties. We're getting into the thirties. And society definitely did start to change at that time. It it wasn't just all about the politics. You started seeing royal houses and aristocrats starting to open up to the public because it was a, a way to make money in order to sustain the estate mm-hmm. um, and, and keep it still working for the county and, and to supply jobs and such. Um which actually, the real Downton Highclere Castle is open to the public. Yeah, I was I was gonna ask you, um, is is it still a, is Highclere still an actual home, or is it just kind of owned as I don't want to say a tourist attraction? No, it's it's a it's, working estate. Lady um, Caravan, I think her name is, uh, okay. pretty much runs it. Uh, it, they, I watched a couple of documentaries uh, with her talking about how Downton has helped to save the estate on a number of occasions. Oh, I um, dare say, even outside of just location fees, um, yeah. if you respectfully turn it into, you know, a des- tourism destination, and they say. have, um, you can, you know. You know, take them through certain rooms mm-hmm. where filming is, and still preserve you know the dignity of the family. You mm-hmm. know, in other spots, and there were there were even times um, during like tours and stuff. Uh, it, it was very rare. It was only like once every couple of years where they would have like a weekend where you could come and be from downtown you could dress up uh you could stay there you could have dinner um almost almost like a larp kind of yeah um now that they've even started their own gin distillery for high clear itself in the past couple of years um so they've definitely branched out and they used downtown as a jumping off point in order to do that Mm -hmm. but prior to that it was still a working estate it just was working very tight yeah. 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 I would say, you know, if there is no further Downton Abbey uh product in terms of film or anything like that, uh they could that that uh they could probably still sus- 
at least partially subsist off of residual uh, income from people visiting and stuff for probably yeah. about 30 years. Downton is, and I've said this before a thousand times, the house itself is a character. Mm-hmm. It would not work if it was just, you, you see so much in period dramas like, oh, Mr. Darcy's home. We drive up, oh, you see it across the lake. It's shining. It's beautiful. But so m- much of it doesn't happen there. So it's just, it's the splendor in the background. Downton is a character. It's why it's always one, the first major character that you see. You mm-hmm. don't see any of the people living in it usually before you see the house itself. Exactly. Um, and that is when the theme always hits. Is because everyone is there for the good of the house and the house is there for the good of those who live inside it. We are getting into spoilers, so – and I'm – I'm, you know where I'm headed. Yeah, the, there's – But a, there's a reason why I was okay, heading there. Okay. Um, Maggie Smith's Dowager Countess, um, Violet Crawley, does not make it out of this film. She finally does pass away at the end of it, mm-hmm. which it's about time, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> From a strictly horrifically <laughs> um, pragmatic standpoint, um, if Maggie Smith had passed away between, you know, movies, you know, or, or if they let her live through this one, then she passes away before they can make another one, and then they make another one. That's a, you know, that's a that's a hard problem to address, and I think fans would have problems with not having had that opportunity closure. to say goodbye and have that closure with the character. She is definitely the head of – she's the matriarch. She is the old guard. So it also is very symbolic that she would have to pass on in order for the the new era. Mm -hmm. And I I like that they they timed it for the end of the 20s into the 30s because that was pretty much the end at that time of – the old guard and kind of a new world coming up where we're heading into the thirties and the start of world war two. And that's when everything really, really changed and societal boundaries started to shift. Oh gosh. Yeah. I mean, just by, you know, having most of your men away at war, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, women stepping up, taking charge, running things. And then when the guys came back, they're like, nah, we're good. We're still in charge, right? Nope, nope. And that, you know, mm-hmm. started, you know, certain feelings of unrest, which ultimately came, you know, burst forth in uh, the feminist movement of the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, so. But um, the reason why I brought that up mm-hmm. is as I was leaving the film, I looked at Darren. I go, we'll see them again. They're already talking about the third film. Mm-hmm. And he says, can you do one without Maggie Smith? And I said, yes, you absolutely can. It's going to be hard for a lot of the viewers who are, are going to miss that that banter between her and Isabel. And oftentimes she is the moral high ground. She puts mm-hmm. people in their place. I, but- I, th- I think a very interesting story is how do you – Continue. I mean, it's almost metatextual. Yeah. But how do you continue when 
a family loses that matriarch mm-hmm. and who fills that that position and do they feel comfortable doing it do they feel like they're able to step into those shoes and i think that's a great source of drama but when i said when i was talking to him i said you absolutely can because the individual crawlies do not matter it's the family as they said at the end of the first film, Mr. Carson, thank you. In a hundred years, Downton will still stand and the Crawleys will still be in it. Mm-hmm. It's it's just passing it off. Yes. Passing and the it, torch. Always, constantly. It's not about the one person. It's about the unit. It's mm-hmm. it's about the home. And, and, and the I think estate. we come back to that idea that I had when we talked about the first movie yeah. of – you know, checking in with this this family every so many years and seeing, you know, the younger children co- growing up and uh, things like that. You know, in Downton Abbey, the next generation, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Downton Abbey, Deep Space Nine. Um, <laughs> Deep Sussex Nine, excuse me. And, oh. um, <laughs> Deep South of France <laughs> with Sybil. Yeah, Sibby. si- yeah Sibby's house. Okay. Uh, Sibby's Villa. <laughs> Sibby's Villa is... Yeah, Men if you, for leisure. If, if you know your history, it's not it's not going to be with the family that long, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, um, and and that and then, kills me. Yeah, but I I think again that's a story opportunity. Maybe two movies down the line, three movies down the line. Well, you and I definitely talked about. I would love to see Downton through World War Two, mm-hmm. and um, it's because it, it's you know the houses in Yorkshire. And um, obviously, during the Blitz, a lot of the children were sent into the country. Um, I would like to see Downton become kind of a, I don't want to say a surrogate orphanage, but imagine taking all these kids in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, we and saw something similar do. during World War One, where With they kind the of convalescent sh- home yeah. for the soldiers. Yeah. And they would but, just say, look, we did this before, we can do it again. And that it continues the idea of tradition. Of service. But it could also change things. Because at that point, the two kids, the eldest of the two kids, George and Sybil, will be hitting around 20 Mm -hmm. during World War II. Sybil might be in her villa in the south of France. George is old enough to go into service. He's going to go to war. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, whether or not he receives a commission and stays on the home front at maybe a Whitehall or or something remains to be seen. But he could go, he could go to into battle. True. And what would happen to Mary if she lost her son? The only last attachment she had to Matthew. Mm-hmm. Her heir. Yeah. Um, again. Lots of dramatic possibilities coming up. But let's look at the dramatic possibilities of this <laughs> movie. Yeah. We are, you know, like, you know. Um, Julian, just, you should be watching. You should be listening to us, taking call notes. Call us. Call us. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, this is not a pitch meeting for <laughs> Downton 3. Oh, honey, I would love to pitch to, re- to be. Downton Abbey, the three Downton. Um <laughs> Let's start with Lord Grantham in this. He okay. goes on quite a physical, emotional Mm-hmm. Mor- moral journey he does um and that that touched me um basically uh if you haven't seen it okay spoilers um 
you know, there's, you know, he feels his wife could be dying. And faced with that. And he knows his mother is. And he knows his mother is. That's a lot to deal with. And, you know, I think, you know, we both have dealt with parental health issues and um, are still ongoing. Yeah. Um, And to add, you know, one's spouse into that kind of stress and that emotional uh, wear and tear. You know, I very much when they're at the villa in France and and he has that momentary break where he just starts sobbing. Yeah. I I, I, was, I was pretty much right there with him. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, no. <laughs> um, well, what killed me about all of that is um, – all right. Really quick, quick synopsis. I'm going to try to make this four sentences at the most. I'll be counting. <laughs> Go. The film opens. Violet Crawley, Maggie Smith, receives news that she has inherited a villa in the south of France from a possible former lover by the name of the Marquis de Montreal. And the family, his remaining family, is disputing it. So they ask Robert and some of the family to come and visit them at the, at the villa. Whereas at the home front, we need a new roof. And so the family is approached by a film crew called British Lion about doing a film at the Abbey, at which point Lady Mary takes charge of the ship and is there to oversee the shooting of the film at Downton Abbey. Yes. Okay. Was that four? I think that was three. Ah, even better. But, but one was a run on. But I'll let uh. you have it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so yeah, so like I said, you know, they kind of split the um, the family in half, which I think really kind of works to the best advantage of the movie. It really does um, because it allows the characters in each location more time to shine. Because they only have a concentrated amount of time. If everybody was just at the Abbey, mm-hmm. I have a bad feeling that whatever people story would they're get telling, forgotten. Yeah, whatever story they're telling, people would kind of like disappear after a while. And I never got that feeling here. No, um, I, I like seeing Edith is back to work again. Um, Branson and and Lucy are blissful in their honeymoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lady Bagshaw. Is, Melda is back in the family for good. Um, Daisy and Andrew are absolutely fucking adorable downstairs. <laughs> and makes me want to puke. <laughs> Mrs. Patmore. Aww. Mm-hmm. Actually, I do think that Anna and Mr. Bates don't get as much time here to shine as normal. Um, Yeah. I would say I would say if anybody is really shortchanged, and this is kind of like Mr. on Bates. a sliding scale, it would be Anna and Bates. Yeah. Uh, although I think Anna gets a little bit more time than him, uh, because you know she yeah. gets to help with Myrna Dalgleish. Yes. Um. Well, Anna and Bates really got to to shine a little more in the last film, so I like the idea that they took a step back and allowed like Daisy and Andrew. Mm-hmm. A little more time here, and uh, and Mosley and and Phyllis finally, 
finally. Oh my God, I've been waiting for it. And boy, was it fucking beautiful. It was so in Mosley fashion. Yes. It was It was so incredibly dorkily sweet, you know? Yes. <laughs> that you're just kind of like, ah. And, you know, I, I like how he just kind of basically stumbles into a new career for himself as a screenwriter now. Yeah. Um, and I did the math uh, when I was homesick after seeing the film for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just laying in bed with a fever going, how much is he going to make? I'm going to do the inflation count on this. Um, it's like $130,000 for the four scripts, um, that he would write. And if they got picked up to film and he got his bonuses, it would be like 200 grand a year. Oof. That's not too shabby. No, he, he I'll probably can't. I'll write four scripts and I don't care if they get made or not for 130000 <laughs> a year. So, yeah, he actually comes out one of the better, well-off characters mm-hmm. in the Downton storyline. Um, it, it it was nice in the third act to finally get to see. I wish I could have been there the day that they all got their scripts and they were sitting down and reading it and they went, yay, we don't have to be in our servants wear. We get to dress up for once in our <laughs> damn life. Yes. They, they probably actually had to go in for costume fittings for new costumes. <laughs> not, not for the same darn thing they've worn for 15 years now or whatever. Yeah. Oh, my God. Bless their hearts. Um, <laughs> now, I... And I, yeah, I kind of, again, there's probably a metatextual level too, to, um, you know, a film crew filming a film crew <laughs> in the, in High Claire. Um, and, uh, one thing though that kind of got to me a little bit once or twice, there was a few instances and I didn't mark them down because, um, I wasn't thinking, um, where the, the dialogue just felt a little, too on the nose or too little, a little close to speechifying. And I can't remember exactly where, but I remember walking out of the screen and going, mm. I, I, I enjoyed the movie for the most part, but there was like a couple of times where I just remembered going, hmm, uh, over some of the dialogue. Now, I would have to go back and rewatch it, honestly. To, I've seen it twice, and to be honest, pinpointed. I can't think of what those might be. Okay. Okay. Um, Barrow. Let's talk Barrow really quick. Okay. Yeah, that's again. Um that was that was one of those things that actually hurt. It really hurt me that he le- that the character basically is leaving the franchise yeah. at least for now. Cuz yeah. he left before, didn't he? And came back. Um or am I um, You you thinking Branson? Yeah. Cuz Branson went to Yeah, America. America to with Sibby. Yeah. Um but you know, Barrow has gone from like being a complete fucking villain. In he the went first from season. being the most hated character on the show so, to, to one of the most loved, and at least a very sympathetic character. Mm-hmm. And you under best villains are have a element of sympathy about them because you sure. understand why they're doing or why they're acting the way they are. And I think you know definitely the family is much more accepting of Barrow. As a gay man, then I think probably most uh, the aristocracy at the time in England would have been. Yeah, I um, would agree. And which, yeah, it makes the family look great, but I'm not sure, okay, if we're going entirely historically accurate, you know, for everybody to just be like, eh, it's cool. 
um, doesn't feel right. I think there would at least have been tension, more tension in the house, or you know, the fa- uh, you know, like Lord Grantham would have been like, can't have him around here, and you know, Mary well, would have been like, well, I don't think Lord Grantham knows. I think only a select few people know or have figured it out. Okay, um, Th- that and that may be me. Assuming my audience knowledge is the same as all the character knowledge, which is a bad assumption to make during movies. Yeah. Right. Um, with I, – I would think that there are definitely are a few people who know. Uh, Mrs. Hughes knows – I think Mrs. Hughes, wasn't she the one who took him to Dr. Clarkson when he was poisoning himself accidentally with those mm-hmm. pills to try to make himself different? <laughs> Yes. Um, so, yeah, she would be privy. Dr. Clarkson would be privy. But then, of course, Dr. Clarkson's pretty much privy to everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think Carson knows. Carson would flip. Mm, yeah, you're right. Carson would. Mary. Mary knows. But she is much more sympathetic to people than... I think sometimes she gets credit for. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think maybe Anna or Bates might have figured it out, but they don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. But and um, I don't think Sib- I don't but, think Sybil ever knew. But uh, but but for the people who know, yeah, they're all very accepting. Yes, and I'm okay with that because. Imagine if our story had taken a different turn of Lord Grantham or Mr. Carson finding out mm-hmm. and having them butt heads against Mary and Mrs. Hughes, their daughter and their wife. Actually, that's a great drama piece. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. Actually, I I really enjoyed what they've done with Barrow. Um, and... There there were quite a couple of good lines that came out of this film around that situation. Um, preferably when he turned in his notice and Mary says, I understand and I hope you are as happy as our cruel world will allow you to be. Mm-hmm. That is that's, a great line. That's a great line and it cuts too. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, it speaks to the time. It speaks to how ultimately things have become have gotten better mm-hmm. and but not enough but not enough yeah. and how i think right now at this point in time there's a definite danger of a lot of that backsliding mm-hmm. and um and not just for straight uh, not just for you know i don't want to say straight gay people because that didn't sound right <laughs> but not just for um gay people but for you know across that whole uh, across the whole spectrum of lgbtq um and I think that's also kind of interesting when they start to layer in something like that in Downton Abbey. Yeah. Because they don't often have the chance to. No. Um, America is not going to be any easier than England. In fact, it might become harder. Mm-hmm. Um, England definitely, in terms of LGBTQ, was more accepting first. But then, of course, is Weird as it is to say it, us Americans have always been behind the Britons. They freed the slaves first. They got through LGBTQ vice squads first. Like, <laughs> Yeah, even <laughs> although I. <sighs> we consider ourselves such a great nation and mm-hmm. yet 
we can't seem to figure our shit out like they have. I know. <laughs> On certain things, yeah. Um, you know, but even, you know, looking at... Um, um, oh, crap. I'm suddenly blanking on the guy's name, um, who basically was the code breaker uh, during World Alan War II. Alan Turing. Alan Turing. Duh. Yeah. Yeah, so Alan Turing even, you know, in the, wait, late 40s, early 50s, once, um, you know, he was accused and convicted of being a homosexual. Ooh. You know, he took that chemical castration. Yeah. Um, and... You know, and you think about that happening in the 50s. And it's like, that's, you know, it's it's less than 100 years ago. And, you know, it's certainly outside of both of our lifetimes. So we look at it historically. But there are people alive who at least probably have a vague remembrance of that, mm-hmm. you know, in their older years now. So when you think about it, we've come so far, but we haven't come far enough. No. You know, at that point, you know, from there, it seems like. And, um there will always be an older guard. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there will always be an older guard who who decry what's happening with the younger generation. Yeah. Um, and again, this is something I heard recently on a uh, podcast where, you know, a couple of comics were talking how um, they know some of their friends uh, in in the business are bitch and complain about cancel culture. Oh, we can't say this. We can't say that because of cancel culture. We can't. Yeah. And... They were like, you know what? They sound like the old Catskill comics from when we were kids, you know, in the business just starting out, com- who were complaining, oh, these kids today using all the blue language and all the profanity, they'll never get anywhere. And it's a fad. It will fall, you know, they, you know. So once you get old enough, you always start to complain about what's happening behind you because you may have seen enough change. But there's always more change coming. To coming. Yeah. And I think that is the ultimate through line of the entire Downton Abbey franchise. I would agree with you. Okay. Hey, and about on that note. That wraps us up for this, this week. week. Wow. In a bow. Beautiful. <laughs> that, was, that was absolutely beautiful. Thank it you. really was. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're glowing. Ah, yeah. Hey, <laughs> I wasn't sure I could pull that off, but <laughs> don't don't glow too much, or okay. you might go supernova. Okay. <laughs> Remember, you can find us online at bigpicturepod.com, and we are now available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. So either use the link in the show notes post or head directly there, search and hit subscribe. And if you like what you're listening to, please give us a positive review because that always helps us connect with new listeners. Now, before we get out of here, um, we'll be back in next time with a review of something new, but I do want to uh, kind of throw out um, one promo. Um, you may have heard me on the Loud and Nerdy part podcast with my friend uh, J.W. Caldwell. Well, uh, he's roped me into a whole nother podcast <laughs> uh, called Generation Movies. It's live on Facebook through the... Uh, indie escape network uh so just search facebook or twitter for them uh, every wednesday night 10 p.m eastern right now we're doing a um look back at uh the summer of 1982 and discussing in depth one film from each year uh from each week that opened so far we've talked about conan the barbarian last week was dead men don't wear plaid and um this week coming up, if you listen to this, and I get this out uh, right on Monday morning, this week is going to be um, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. 
Oh, <laughs> God. That's why all the Star Trek jokes throughout our Downton Abbey review. I didn't have any Star Well, no, I've always said the Star Down- Trek Next Generation thing. And Downton Deep Space Nine. Well, d- yeah, I've, I've made those jokes before, though. <laughs> <laughs> but it does kind of help. Anyways, like I said, uh, we'll be back uh, next time with uh, more news and a review of... Um, whatever else we're seeing. Mm-hmm. And that's all right here on the Big Picture Podcast. Hooray for Hollywood. That's gooey, bally, hooly, ho.